macaroni and cheese, vivid tangerine, dandelion, light chrome green, shamrock, robin's egg blue, outer space, denim, wild blue yonder, purple heart, vivid violet, jazzberry jam, tickle me pink, raw sienna. What do all of these have in common? They're crayons. Well, crayon colors. Do you know what's not a crayon? Amber brown. And so confirms the title of Paula Danziger's beloved 1993 children's book, Amber Brown is Not a Crayon, in which title character Amber Brown is forced to deal with the news that her best friend, Justin, is moving away. This little gem of a story touches on matters of friendship, divorce, change, bullying, and the best way to eat a cookie. And my guests and I chat about all of it on today's episode. We also discuss the subtle Jewish representation that we see in the book, Amber's vibrant voice, our memories of time spent with our childhood friends' parents, the challenges of moving as a kid, and the not-like-other-girls trope. You are gonna love it. It is such a treat to introduce you to my episode 156 guest, Rachel Lynn Solomon. Rachel Lynn Solomon is the best-selling author of The X Talk, Today, Tonight, Tomorrow, and We Can't Keep Meeting Like This. Her romantic comedies for teens and adults have received praise from The New York Times, NPR, and Entertainment Weekly. Born and raised in Seattle, she's currently navigating expat life in Amsterdam with her husband and tiny dog. Learn more about Rachel and her work at www.rachelsolomonbooks.com and follow her on Instagram at rlin underscore Solomon. I love when she shares behind the scenes of her writing on Instagram, and I love her work too. It was a challenge for me not to fangirl throughout this entire conversation, but I'm pretty sure I kept it cool. Mostly. If you're not already, come on over and follow along with SSR on social media. We are at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find the show on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast community. You can get really social with our listener family by getting involved with the SSR Book Club. The SSRBC is totally free, and every month, our fabulous volunteer leaders facilitate conversations about books that have previously been featured on the podcast in Facebook, Slack, Google Hangouts, and Zoom. This week, we kick off our August conversations about Holes and Gossip Girl. Learn more and jump in at www.ssrpodcast.com slash ssrbookclub or at the link in SSR's Instagram bio. If you love what's happening with SSR and want to support, there are a couple of things that I would suggest. And let me just say, your support means a lot. I run all of the behind the scenes of SSR by myself, and I happily welcome all of the cheerleading. Leaving a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts can help more people find their way to SSR. Sharing this episode to your Instagram story also goes a long way to help me spread the word. You can also get involved in SSR's Patreon. As an SSR patron, you'll get newsletters, Patreon parties, bonus episodes, weekly voice notes, SSR merch, and access to SWR, aka Shit We Read, an exclusive book club led by me in which we discuss a new book that's actually meant for grown-ups. Moving forward, SWR will be meeting every other month, and our next book club will happen in September. We'll be choosing our September book selection soon, and I would love your input. Get all the Patreon details and become a patron at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or by visiting www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. Shout out to all the patrons tuning into this episode now. Now that it's officially August, I bet you have a bunch of books still left on your summer TBR that you're hustling to finish before fall arrives, and audiobooks can help you check those titles off the list. With Libro.fm, you can support independent bookstores instead of giant corporations when you shop for audiobooks. 
The audiobooks are exactly the same as the ones you would get from the big guys, and they're the same price too. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Head on over to Libro.fm right now and grab audio editions of your remaining summer reads. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Rachel. Welcome to SSR. Hi, Allie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm talking to both you and your dog, who is on your lap still, (laughs) I believe. Do we need to introduce your dog to the listeners, or does your dog prefer to stay incognito? You know, he usually prefers to stay incognito, but in case he does bark or growl, um, he is Wally. He is trouble, but we love him. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Wally. We're very excited to have you on the podcast. I already told Rachel this, listeners, many of you know my golden retriever, Irving, and he is currently moping outside the door. So he only wishes that he could be Wally and sitting on my lap, but he's also 70 pounds and doesn't fit. So that's what's happening over here at my house. But Rachel, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. And today we are talking about a book that I think many of our listeners will be very familiar with. It's called Amber Brown is Not a Crayon, written by Paula Danzinger, whose name I have a really hard time pronouncing. I always want to include an extra N in there. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I don't know if I've ever met someone with that name or heard that name, except attached to this book. And I was also really sad to learn that she passed away. Yeah, in 2004. And her passing was actually connected to the end of the series, which I'm sure we'll talk about as well. But before we get into the conversation, I'd love if you would share a little bit about any personal connection you have to the book. You suggested it, which I always, I love when guests suggest a book that they want to talk about. So any memories that you have connected with this book or just any thoughts on why you wanted to come back to it for this episode? Definitely. So I was a pretty voracious reader as a kid. And I imagine I read this book when I was too young to fully understand everything that was going on, even though it is a chapter book, definitely an early reader book. Uh, But I was always reading years and years above my grade level because I was you know, that combination of like precocious slash a little obnoxious. Same, same. (laughs) Uh, But I remember having really fond memories of it and just the covers of the series were really vivid in my mind. And as soon as I started reading, so many things came back to me. Like they had just been hidden away in these little cupboards inside my brain. And I just loved that it sparked so many memories for me. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. So I definitely read it, but it wasn't a book that is connected to any major memories for me. Like I'm aware of the series, I'm aware of the title. It's been on my list for the podcast for a long time because I know it's a touchstone for a lot of people, but I don't remember it or I didn't remember it very well before I came back to it. I actually didn't even know that there was a whole series attached to it. Paula Danziger wrote these books for about 10 years. This book, Amber Brown is Not a Crayon, was published in 1994 and the series ended in 2004 when she passed away. 
I don't know for sure if she intended to keep writing, but I would assume that she did. And then interestingly, in 2012, her agent came up with the idea to introduce a few new titles. And so Bruce Colville and Paula Danziger's very good friend, Elizabeth Levy, worked together to write, I believe, two or three additional titles to add to the series, which I think is really special that they were able to continue it even with her not around sort of in honor of her. I also didn't know that there was a series of picture books attached to this character that came out shortly after Amber Brown is Not a Crayon. So like Amber Brown as a character is beloved. And I kind of feel like maybe I missed something with her when I was a kid. You know, I was doing some research before this too, and I had no idea that this series, yeah, spanned so many titles and that it had these spinoffs. I think I read a few of them. I doubt I went past books three or four, Um, but you know, this came out in 94. I was five. So I probably read these really early in school. And then as I started reading, you know, more and more beyond my, my grade level, I probably abandoned them rather quickly too. It was really interesting to go back and do that research. Yeah, I think that's probably what happened to me because I would have been four when the book came out and I too was precocious and probably a little bit obnoxious (laughs) and did tend to read above my grade level. And so if I had to guess, I would say I probably read this book when I was like six or seven and then kind of lost interest in this series, which is a shame because I really do think that this character is really compelling and the writing is so good and the voice Mm -hmm. is so strong and I'm excited to talk about it with you. I also wanted to share some of the titles and the rest of the series because they're really funny. So book two is called You Can't Eat Your Chicken Pox, Amber Brown. Forever Amber Brown, which I feel like sounds, it's not funny, but it sounds like very intense. It sounds like a different kind of Amber Brown. Amber Brown sees red. Amber Brown is feeling blue, of course, playing up on this whole like crayon color thing. And then the last book that the original author wrote is called Amber Brown is Green with Envy. So they really leaned into that crayon thing later on in the series. I'd love to know what your first impressions were of the book as you reacquainted yourself with Amber Brown. This book is really short. It's something like Mm -hmm. 78 pages. So I really devoured it quite quickly. And I feel like you just kind of get right into things with Amber. What did you think of those first few pages? You really are just kind of dropped into it. I think I was expecting maybe a softer opening because it opens up with Amber telling the reader that her class is on a plane to China. And I was like, I don't remember this book taking place in China. (laughs) Yeah. But as it goes on, you realize that this is just something that her teacher does as a way, you know, they pretend that they're traveling to all these places to learn about different countries. And I thought that was really fun and is just kind of a signals right away. Like, oh, okay, this is a like capital letters, good teacher. I always like a good teacher. Yeah. And especially like, I personally don't remember reading a lot of books during this time, like in the early to mid 90s, about teachers that were men. Like this, Mm. I I think was unique for the time. I, I remember in school, there were so few teachers that were men in my elementary school in particular, that it was like cool if you ended up in one of their classrooms. And it was very rare, at least in the 90s, in my experience, and definitely in pop culture. So I definitely made a note of that, of the fact that Paula Danziger made a very intentional choice to like, not only give us a very cool teacher, but also a teacher who was a man and who was very excited about being in his classroom with these third graders. Yeah, I didn't notice, or I didn't pick up on that. But that is such a great point. Um, The other thing that resonated with me, and I would be shocked if this hadn't resonated with me as a kid, too, is the teacher, Mr. Cohen, 
this isn't mentioned ever, but like that last name really codes him as Jewish and I'm Jewish. And even though it's just the mention of the last name, it was just this little sign to me like, oh, okay, there's like the tiniest bit of diversity here. Or like there's just this little bit of connection that I had with the teacher. So that was meaningful. I know it's such a small thing, but sometimes it's just a little bit that you grasp onto. Yeah. I mean, his name is not Mr. Jones or Mr. Smith. And that does go a long way. So I agree. And I I had the same experience when the book started and they were going on a a plane to China. I was like, wait, are they actually? Because very cool field trip. But then when I realized that they weren't actually going on a trip to China, I was so struck by what a great teacher Mr. Cohen is and how much I wish that I had had a teacher like this. I did have some very great elementary school teachers, elementary school teachers that really ignited my love of reading and writing especially. But to be taught social studies and geography and history in this way is so fascinating to me. And I love the fact that Mr. Cohen established this whole system around the way that he, quote, like flies these students around the world. Like they rotate responsibilities as like flight attendants Mm -hmm. and they have different jobs in this fake plane and they have passports that they have to use. And it just seems so fun. I loved it. It really took me back to that place of like, being in third grade. And like, I tried to, to picture how exciting that sort of classroom process would be. And Wally just popped his head up and he is so cute. I know he likes to be <laughs> incognito, but I can't help it. He's adorable. He, um, he really is. It's sometimes hard to concentrate on anything when he's just like, he can just be standing there looking at me. I'm like, ah, how can I get anything done? <laughs> I understand. Maybe he would like to go on a trip to China with Amber Brown and her class. You know, he did recently fly from Seattle to Amsterdam and did surprisingly well. He was heavily drugged, but, uh, (laughs) you know, he made it. Congrats, Wally. Yeah. That's really cool, Wally. So yeah, Mr. Cohen is very cool, but you're right. We jump right in. And something that struck me just about the writing in general was that like, again, this is a very short book, but we get so much out of it. Absolutely. And I am so used to reading, you know, I write both YA and romance. And it's been a while since I read middle grade and even longer since I read a book like this. So I think part of me was expecting the language to be less sophisticated than it was like there, it just had a really great rhythm to it. Uh, And you can tell that the author like isn't talking down to kids, like she just treats their emotions and problems with all the respect and sensitivity that they deserve to be treated with. And it just, you feel like very comfortable and safe in this book. Yeah, this this made me wanna learn more about the author because mm-hmm. I she just seems really cool. I agree with you. She gives these kids so much credit at, they, and they deserve all of that credit. But I think just like the clarity that Amber Brown has as a narrator, and she's so sure of herself and of her feelings. She's so self-aware, which is, I think, something that people struggle with into adulthood. Um, she's really good at communicating her feelings. And when I really think about it, like most kids are able to communicate their feelings really well. It's only when we become older and we sort of feel the pressures of other people and like etiquette that we feel like we have to censor ourselves. But often I feel like in pop culture, it's swapped. Like I sometimes think that creators don't necessarily like realize that kids are really good at expressing their emotions until we kind of teach them not to be. Mm -hmm. And so I thought this was really refreshing. 
That is a really good point. Yeah, and I, it's it's something that I hear a lot of with regard to children's literature, which YA is definitely under that umbrella. People just go, don't give teens kind of enough credit for how intelligent and like in tune with their emotions they are, and so much of their or so yeah, so much of their desires and and kind of hopes and fears are often really readily discarded by adults um, and looked down upon. And it's something that I I think about a lot. Yeah, I feel like newer YA, it's just getting more complex. Like I think if you read older YA, there's none of that. And as YA becomes a richer genre with more authors writing in it, it's it's just great to see how much care is being taken to ensure that teen characters are getting the opportunity to have full emotional breadth and depth, like all of it is on the page, which is really nice. And Amber Brown is giving us like a little touch of that in middle grade in 1994. Yes, for sure. I didn't really notice this while I was reading. But as we talk about it, like something I noticed later on in the book is that Amber's mom, and we'll talk about this further, but Amber's mom gives her a lot of space to like feel her feelings, and I think has a lot of respect for her. But when I think about it, Mr. Cohen kind of is the same way. Like he's respectful of his students in the same way that really all of the parents that we meet in the book seem to be respectful of their children. That's very true. And it's interesting that you say that her mom gives her space because I actually marked, I was reading this in my Kindle, her mom doesn't show up on the page until 75% into the book, which, you know, it's a short book, but uh, she kept referencing her mom and like yeah we don't actually see her for quite some time so I wonder if part of that space is just that she is not physically there with us the reader yeah that's true that's true we don't really meet her until things get really sad until things really become kind of a bummer for Amber but speaking of Amber's mom let's talk a little bit about what's happening with Amber's family when we meet her. So as we are introduced to the story, we find out that Amber, I keep wanting to last name her, like I keep wanting to refer to her as Amber Brown every time I bring (laughs) her up. Uh, We find out that Amber Brown's parents are recently divorced and that her dad, or separated, but I think ultimately they do get divorced if they're not divorced in this book already. And her dad has moved to another country to take a job. I was a child of divorce. My parents got divorced when I was two or three years old. And so I'm always fascinated in these conversations for the podcast about the way divorce is depicted in Kidlet, especially in the 90s, which was the era in which I was reading depictions of divorce as a child of divorce. Do you have any thoughts about the way that Amber's family is portrayed here? So I was actually surprised when I learned that her parents were divorced because it felt... I guess it just didn't match up with what my idea of what this what I thought this book would be. It just felt like such a weighty topic to introduce that she's already in the aftermath of. But I appreciated that so, so much. Like it wasn't the kind of thing where she goes home and her parents are at each other's throats, which I feel like is a lot of the kind of divorce representation that that I read as a kid. And then also I feel like I probably read it very differently now versus when I was a kid because my parents actually got divorced when I was an adult, which was a kind of a weird experience. But yeah, it I can imagine reading this and seeing this kind of very well-adjusted kid who isn't holding on to bitterness for either parent. I, I can imagine it feeling very refreshing and also just being a great book for teachers to give to kids who are who might be struggling with that. Yeah, I think it almost 
it feels a bit like an afterthought almost like it's, yeah. it's something that she is dealing with. It's something that is obviously hard for her in certain moments, harder in some moments than it is in others, but it's not as though it doesn't feel like an issues book in that way. Like it's not a book about divorce and the divorce is pretty recent. So it easily could have been an issues book about divorce. And that's not the direction that the author went, which I really appreciated. Interestingly, one of the members of our SSR Facebook group mentioned to me that the divorce does become more present in later books in the series mm -hmm. and that it actually gets pretty ugly between the parents. And I haven't read them, so I can't, uh, okay. I can't speak to like the specifics of that. But it does sound like that becomes more of an issue later on. And then I was even scrolling through the last couple of pages of the book before you and I jumped on today. And I guess, spoiler alert, book three is all about Amber's mom getting remarried. And even in the blurb that the publisher included in this book, it talks about how one of the major plot points in that story is Amber's mom making a lot of mean comments about his ex-wife's new husband-to-be. So it does seem like it maybe mm. gets a little bit more complicated, but I'm glad that that's not how we meet Amber. Yeah, I, I think that was what threw me, is I expected for a children's book, you know, something geared toward this age set, I expected divorce to be the topic, that it would be right. a book about divorce instead of a book about, you know, a girl whose friend is moving away and her parents just happen to be divorced, which is what it was. Yeah, I also think for better or for worse, and pun unintended with that language, <laughs> for whatever reason, I think writing about divorce in the 90s was very trendy. And that feels weird to say because mm -hmm. it it shouldn't be commodified that way, I don't think. But I do feel like the 90s and the aughts was this time when like, there was so much out there about divorce rates. And it did feel so central to so many stories in movies and TV shows and in books, of course. But I think the way Paula Danziger handles this is like very true to life. Like it's a thing that Amber deals with. There are consequences of it that weigh on her really heavily sometimes, but it's not like she meets somebody and is like, hi, my name is Amber Brown. My parents got divorced a few months ago. Just like when I was a kid, I didn't introduce myself that way, but there were days that it made me sad. So it does feel like Amber is sort of introducing that part of her life to the readers the same way that she would to somebody in real life. Yeah, I, I think that's true for sure. I also thought it was cool the way that Paula Danzinger played up this relationship that Amber and her mom have with Justin's family and Justin's mom. And it's something that I appreciated more as an adult than I probably did as a kid. But there are all of these little sort of subtle references to the fact that Amber's best friend, Justin's mom, and Amber's mom are really close friends. And as you mentioned, Rachel, we don't actually meet Amber's mom until like three quarters of the way through the book. And it's because Amber spends a lot of her time outside of school at Justin's house. And we don't get this information explicitly, but like my guess is that maybe Amber's mom is working full time and Justin's mom isn't. And so Justin's mom is able to like step in and handle some of the child's care needs that have come up since the divorce. I think that that's something that we don't like see enough in depictions of divorce. Like it's such a cliche thing, but like it, it takes a village sometimes and sometimes people step up in really beautiful ways. Like it doesn't have to be a bad thing to call on other resources when your family changes. Yeah, and I think it's it's impossible to read this and not think about like the other people's houses that you spent time at as oh, a kid. Yes. And just like your relationship with their parents. And I remember just being 
really scared of other adults and <laughs> just totally unsure how to interact with them, especially when they, because I was a very serious kid. Um, so, so when other people, when other kids' parents would like try to joke with me, I just had no idea how to respond. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any like, so here's, I have this really like fond memory of my best friend in elementary school's mom. And she was like lovely in every way. I think this friend actually occasionally listens to the podcast. So if you're listening, Kat, shout out to you and your mom. But I have this very vivid memory of going to sleepovers at her house and her mom would make teddy bear shaped pancakes for breakfast, which sounds really complicated, but it's not. She would just sort of like glob the three small circles of pancake batter together and then use mini chocolate chips as buttons and eyes. But I don't think I'd ever seen like teeny tiny chocolate chips before. (laughs) And it blew my mind. And that's something that I think about 25 years later. And I, I think it just it shows like what an impact people can have on a kid. And I'm sure my parents have made that kind of impact on my friends. And I don't even know it. Do you have any memories like that of the adults that you spend time with when you were a kid? Oh, I love that so much. <laughs> that's adorable. You know, there's something about those tiny chocolate chips that's just better than regular chocolate chips. Like you take any food and you make it smaller. It's just yeah. better. That's a rule. Yeah. Except I don't want them in my chocolate chip cookies. Like that, I have to oh, okay, them there. But I do enjoy them in pancakes. Like it's good to have them around, but I can't, I can't allow them in my cookies. So yeah, in terms of, you know, other kids' parents, all of the parents in my neighborhood were kind of, I don't want to say absent because that I think gives off a very weird (laughs) connotation, but, uh, you know, my parents and the parents of all the kids in my neighborhood, they all like, I think this was also kind of a newer thing at the time where both parents worked. So whoever had like adjusted their schedule so that they could partially work from home and like pick the kids up, like you would just go to their house um, and then like wait till your parents got home. Yeah, I think all of my memories are just of parents kind of like shuffling kids around and like kind of being there in the background, but not being too involved. Um, Like my own parents were fairly hands off. And I think part of that was because again, I was like very serious, very independent. Like I just wanted to read and, and, be quiet and be left alone for the most part. (laughs) Yeah, I get it. (laughs) It's so key to like the way that parents would be in the car because like how much time did we spend Mm -hmm. in carpools and like various driving situations with parents? So it's like, what kind of music do parents let you listen to? Or like, what kind of music do they listen to? Do they ask you a lot of questions? I remember those kinds of nuances between parents too. But yeah, I thought it was really cool that Amber had this special special relationship with Justin's mom. And that, of course, brings us to the Justin of it all and (laughs) the real core of this story, which is Amber's relationship with her best friend, who's been her best friend forever, Justin Daniels, I believe is his last Mm -hmm. name, or Justin Davis. And the first thing I want to say about the relationship between Amber and Justin is that it is always so refreshing. And I've said this on the podcast before when we get to read about a relationship between a girl and a boy that is not like loaded with any sort of pressure for them to have a crush on each other. And I know that these kids are in third grade, but how many times have we been exposed to pop culture in which there's like even this so-called like innocent kissing on the playground? Like there's Mm -hmm. absolutely none of that in this book. And I love it. And it made me think of all kinds of friendships that I had myself when I was growing up. I just really liked their dynamic a lot. 
Yes, definitely. And I think in the hands of like a lesser author, (laughs) it could have so easily been like, you know, at the end, him being like, I don't want to move to Alabama because I'm in love with you. I mean, that sounds very, that sounds, (laughs) that sounds a little too mature, but I could totally see him like, putting gum in her hair because he likes her or yeah. I don't think there was m- mention of any kind of crush actually, which was refreshing because you don't need to in third grade. No, you don't need to. Yeah. We didn't get any weird like last scene where he's like, I'm moving to Alabama, but like, let me give you a kiss on the cheek first. And Amber's mom gives her a lot of advice about how to handle the situation with him moving away. But in all of the conversation about him being like cold to her, there's no moment of like, maybe he's being mean to you because he has a crush on you, which we have all learned by 2021 is like a very problematic piece of advice to give to a child anyway. But I really don't think there was any nugget of that kind of thing in this book at all. And I I was happy because it allowed me just to appreciate their friendship. And they had all these inside jokes. They have all these like rituals. They have mm-hmm. these things that they like special way they eat their Oreos. It just felt like at every opportunity, the author allowed these two to play and have their routines. It was really nice. Definitely. I would be really curious to see if any crush type feelings develop um, just in general in the rest of the series. I, I don't know if she ends it still in third grade or I, I would assume she gets a little bit older. I think I saw that this book begins toward the end of third grade. And I do have to read, <laughs> I apologize for any page turning listeners, but I happened to in my um, page flipping before we recorded, I, I found myself at the, you know, how a lot of these books have like, you know, the first chapter of the next book at the end of them. So the first mm-hmm. lines of book two are, third grade, here today, gone tomorrow. I can hardly believe it. It seems like just yesterday was the first day of school. So yes, we end third grade there. (laughs) And then I think the books that span from 1994 to 2004 end at the end of fourth grade. So it's like about a year. That's an interesting choice. Because I would have thought like it would have been natural to begin like first day of third grade or something. They just really drop you right in. It does feel unusual. Like, I wonder if she wanted to do a lot of summer content. I think the second book, I know I read somewhere that the second book, the one um, like Amber Brown, You Can't Eat Your Chicken Pox, was inspired by, well, the whole series was actually inspired by the author's niece, Carrie Danziger. And the second book specifically was inspired by a trip that like all of the women in the Danziger family took to England and Carrie got chicken pox on their first night in England. And so I wonder if there's a travel aspect, like a real travel aspect in the second book. Like maybe they go on a summer trip to England. If anybody knows, let me know. But yeah, maybe she wanted to do some summer stuff before they get back into fourth grade. And then of course we find out that Amber's mom's getting married. So maybe they have a summer wedding. I don't know, but you're right. It seems like it's unusual. Like usually these books have a different cadence. And also like that's just... To write about a single school year, essentially for a decade, that I can't imagine. That's a lot of focus. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you have to really love fourth graders. Yeah, and you know, it's also totally possible that the series just took off in a way that they weren't expecting. I mean, I know publishing is probably unrecognizable in 1994 compared to today. Uh, you know, I can't even imagine like how many books she was originally contracted for and then what they renewed her for. If that information is is even out there, I would be very curious to hear. Yes. And of course, we have to remember that the babysitters of the Babysitters Club remained in eighth grade for 
hundreds of books. So this <laughs> does happen. It, people do get locked in time in these kinds of series. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, who knows what will happen between Amber and Justin. Although I was thinking about the fact that like, there's no mention of becoming pen pals in this book, which I thought was interesting. Like at the end, as she's saying goodbye to Justin and talking about how their friendship might unfold, she's like, maybe I'll call him sometime. Um, <laughs> and when I was a kid, like I hated the phone, especially with landlines. Like the worst part yeah. about having to interact with adults was having to call your friend's house and be like, hi, Mrs. Blank, can I speak to blank? It was terrible. But I loved having pen pals. I guess Amber's a different kid, though. Like Amber probably really thrives on the phone. Yeah, that's probably true. But you're, I, I hadn't even thought of that, about that. But you're right. It's just sort of like, we'll call each other. And then in, you know, your pessimistic adult mind, you're like, they're not going to or like, they'll last a couple weeks, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like pen pals were so of the time too. Like it made sense given the technology options, but it was also like a trendy thing. Like I don't know about you, but I remember there being these like sort of write-in kinds of programs with different like kids magazines where you could yeah. mail in a little card and like get a pen pal in another state. Like being a pen pal was cool in the 90s. It so it totally felt surprised. Yes. So cool. <laughs> as were like the original chain letters. So it was weird to me that we didn't get any of that here. Yeah, that, that is a, an interesting point. Okay, so let's talk about what is taking Justin away and how Amber feels about it. Justin's dad has been working in another state and Amber says this, I know how Justin feels about missing his father. When my parents got divorced, my dad moved far away to another country. So I never get to see him and he hardly ever calls, which side note sounds like another issue. Yeah, Justin's <laughs> lucky though. Yeah, we should probably deal with that in a later book. Justin's lucky though. His father comes home some weekends and he gets to talk to him a lot on the phone. And even though Justin misses his dad, I keep my fingers crossed a lot of the time, hoping that no one buys their house and that Mr. Daniels gets a job here and moves back again. So we're in a waiting game, listeners. We're waiting for Justin's house to sell so that Justin and his little brother and their mom can go to Alabama to be with the dad who's working there. And Amber is like really hoping it doesn't happen. Uh, at the beginning of the book, it does kind of seem like this faraway thing. And then things start to accelerate. It all starts with a fortune cookie. During their trip to China, Justin gets a fortune that says, soon we'll be going on a journey and beginning a new life. And Amber Brown says, I, Amber Brown, hope that fortune cookies are wrong. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my God. I, I totally picked up on that little aside about her dad too. And I was like, oh, yikes. There's some, there's some bad stuff there. Her dad is, is not, not doing what he needs to be to, to be there for her. If she's like, he hardly ever calls and just says it so casually like, oh, oh no. Yeah. I mean, she knows like dad, if you think you're pulling one over on her, you're not like, yeah, she knows yeah. that you don't call and you don't write and you don't care. So you should think about that. But like, no wonder her mom seems to be perfectly happy just making it work with Justin's mom, because maybe, maybe her dad's not so great. I don't know. I don't want to read too far into it. But that was my impression. So then Amber goes on to talk about how they're sort of pretending that everything's the same. She says, I try not to get too nervous. After all, a zillion people have seen the house and not bought it. Maybe Mrs. Bradley's husband will hate it. Mrs. Bradley being this woman who ends up actually buying the house. I hope I'm here when he looks at the house. I'll be sure to mention giant termites. And one of my favorite things about Amber is that like she honestly thinks that she can fix this. Mm -hmm. Yes, she's incredibly determined and she's just very calm and collected about it until 
she realizes that someone is buying the house and they are actually moving away. I had a bit of trouble relating to this because I don't think I had any friends who moved away as a kid. Uh, so I don't quite know what that feeling is like. Um, I remember I had some friends who were like new to the city, new to the school, but I, I didn't have anyone who moved away. Did you? I did move away. I was the one who moved. Oh, you were the Justin. I was Justin. I was thinking about that too. I don't think I ever had a super close friend who moved away. And I, I wanted to be able to do more than just like empathize with her. But I, I could really only find myself reminiscing on what it felt like to be Justin in this scenario. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I lived in a suburb of Seattle and I lived my whole life until I was 18 there. And it was the kind of place, I mean, it's where Microsoft is. So it drew a lot of people. There weren't really a lot of people leaving. It was more yeah. a city that was, you know, attracting people to work for Microsoft and with their young kids. Um, and so that was very much, um, you know, what the culture was like at the time, and especially in the, like, throughout the 90s. And it, you know, it wasn't even until actually a few months ago as an adult that I left Seattle for the first time or moved away from to, from Seattle for the first time. So it is something that's like a bit difficult to relate to. Yeah, I actually relate to it more, I think, as an adult, just in terms of like that feeling of, of your world completely turning upside down as your social circle changes. My husband and I left New York last year mid pandemic and moved to Philadelphia. But before that, we had some close friends that like slowly started to leave New York. I think that's a natural thing that happens when mm -hmm. you live in a big city, like eventually a lot of people leave. And I guess I could relate to Amber a little bit because of that. Because you do you get sort of panicky thinking about like, okay, but like, when are when are we going to talk about this? Or like, when are we going to do the things that we do every Monday? Or when are we going to do the thing that we usually do on Sunday mornings after brunch? Like, when are we going to do these things? And then like, you get that tight feeling in your chest where you're like, everything is changing. I don't even know how to keep this on track. But yeah, I think as a kid, especially you have so little control. And I'm sure that that's part of what kids Amber's age experience when when a friend moves, because at least if you're the friend moving, it's really hard as I can attest to given my own experiences moving as a kid. But at least you kind of have the excitement of like, I'm going to have a new bedroom and like, I'm going to meet new friends. Like your parents generally will play that up a lot. And we see that a little bit with Justin mm -hmm. in the book. But if you're the friend being left behind, you're just like waving goodbye and trying to fill that spot that your friend used to be in. You know, I guess I did have kind of the Justin experience recently because leaving Seattle after living there for 30 years and saying goodbye to these friends that like I love more than, you know, almost anyone in the world was an incredibly difficult thing to do. Uh, and even now with just all the ways that we have of being connected, it still was a little scary to imagine not being as close to them. And I mean, we're texting each other like, I miss you, I love you, like in all caps several times a week. And I just don't want to stop doing that because I feel like if you stop saying it, then you're like, oh no, do they still miss me? Yes, oh my gosh, that's so true. And this book like made me so grateful for our technologies. Like we were joking a little bit about, you know, how Amber and Justin really should be pen pals and having to use landlines to stay in touch. But when I did my moves when I was a kid, I guess we had AOL Instant Messenger. 
And maybe I had like just gotten an email address, AOL.com kind of situation, maybe an MSN situation. <laughs> My parents were like more MSN people. But yeah, it's so, it, this sounds so like obvious now, but it's so much easier to stay in touch. Even if you were in third grade moving, like, I don't know, I guess you could talk on TikTok or something. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, today's third graders, I'm sure they'll be lifelong friends with anyone who moves away. There's, yeah, I mean, you definitely take it for granted, but it also just makes me think a lot about how I think I think a lot about like the differences between millennials and Gen Z. And I think it's you're, you're a millennial too, it seems like based on the ages that we talked about and just having grown up and being able to, to relate to that time when you didn't have that instant connection to people and, you know, Gen Z not really knowing a time before that. I always feel like that's kind of the major difference, one of the major differences between the generations and just how we grew up during such a, this like truly unique time where we got to see all of these new new things be implemented and just drastically change communication forever. And I feel like even saying this, I I feel like, you know, I'm an 80 year old learning how to use email for the first time, but it's true. I think the thing about all this is that like Amber and Justin will have to choose if they want to stay friends. Like they will have to choose if they want to remain connected and if they want to like really invest the effort to stay part of each other's lives. And this is like no disrespect to Gen Zers whose communication systems are a little bit easier and require a little bit less time and effort. But like that, I think fosters different kinds of relationships. Like when I was a kid moving, there were a lot of people that I wasn't able to stay in touch with because it just wasn't easy for us to stay in touch. And so the few people that I did stay in touch with like meant a lot to me and it was hard and we had to like get our parents permission to use the phone because there was a <laughs> landline and we had to get our parents permission to like drive us so that we could spend time together. And I, I just think that it it's a different type of relationship, not necessarily better or worse, but I think Amber and Justin will have to make very thoughtful kinds of decisions if they want to stay friends. And I hope they do. I guess we'll have to read on. But I will say that the moment in the book when we see Amber seeing Justin seeing the sold sticker on his house, it really did break my heart. Yeah, it did. I I mean, you kind of know that it's coming, but it, whether he's bought into everything that Amber has said about the giant termites and filling the toilet with alligators and everything, or he just hasn't been able to to process it. Yeah, that is I, that visual was really striking for sure. And then she goes on to say, I was positive that the day two weeks ago when we saw the sold sticker on the sign was the worst day of my life, but that was only the beginning of worst days. Justin and his mom have been so busy that they haven't even had much time for me. It's so sad. That is, especially because you think her mom is probably working a lot of hours and then her dad hardly calls, as we know. Yeah, he's MIA. And she seems to have weird relationships with a lot of the other kids at school. The title, Amber Brown is not a crayon, comes from this thing that her classmates tease her about. They think that her name sounds like the name of a crayon. And she talks about another girl at school. I think her name is Hannah, who has like the perfect passport picture. Like it's the very beginnings of, I think, this very well-trod territory around cool girls. And I don't think that we're catching Amber within that group, at least not at this point. And so she does seem like at least to a certain degree, she's an outsider. Justin definitely is her best friend. 
And I have to think that she's a little bit lonely. And she also just feels things so hard, which I love about her. She says, when I grow up and remember third grade, I'm going to immediately try to forget it. This is definitely the worst year of my life. The very, 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 very worst. And as adults, it's really easy to be like, oh, that's so dramatic. But when you're in third grade and you've only been alive for nine years, like you don't have anything else to compare it to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, and I'm really glad you actually mentioned the cool girl thing because that was one of the main things that I took notes on while reading. If that's something that you wanted to discuss. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, because I actually had sort of a different interpretation of it. So yeah, there's this other girl, like Hannah Burton, like you said, who has this perfect passport photo. And it's referenced that she really cares a lot about clothes and like looking good and her appearance. And I, I kind of had a negative reaction to that because it did really feel like the early stages of, yes, the kind of cool mean girl syndrome, but also like the villainization of the girl who cares about her appearance. Mm -hmm. um, because I think for a while it was like, you could only be like the image that was presented to girls was like, you could be like these stuck up girls who care about their appearance, or you could be like the unique one who doesn't. So it almost felt like the very beginning of the like, not like the other girls. Mm. Oh, I, I love that. I love that you said that. Yeah, because I really I think that like Amber Brown could totally grow into that kind of kid. And it, it just felt like the the not like the other girls of the third grade and just the, oh, you care about your appearance. That's not what I'm about. And that's kind of looked down upon. Um, yeah. whereas now I think everything is more embraced. Like, yeah, I mean, when I was reading YA, it's like, if you were pretty, you were, you know, Satan. If you, like, if you, you know, dressed well, like you were a villain, which is so, so weird. But yeah, I mean, I'm so glad that now like girls can wear makeup and not be <laughs> demonized for it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I maybe, I was probably reading too much into it, but no, I don't think you were at all. I also think that there's been a lot of conversation about this, you know, not like other girls trope lately. So it's something that I've been thinking about a lot. It's actually something that I talked about with a bunch of SSR friends recently. We were talking about the trope and just kind of like giving it a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And I think everybody gave it a thumbs down. I think people are just kind of over it. I think it was very much of the time in the mm -hmm. 90s and the aughts. And I think people are trying to get away from it, which is nice. But I, I think you're right. I'm so glad you brought that up. I think Amber Brown, like within her her timeline in 1994 and like growing up in the late 90s and early aughts, like she's definitely going to be the girl that like wears fleece sweatpants, fleece pajama pants every day to school. And it's like, I don't care what I look like. And if she wants to wear fleece pajama pants every day to school and not care what she looks like, then that's great. But I think the fact that for a while there, it was very binary, like you are one or the other, you are either the girl that wears fleece pajama pants to school and is nice, or you're the girl that spends a lot of time getting ready for school and you're mean and you can't mm -hmm. be anything in the middle. Like that's what we grew up on. And I don't think it's very productive. And it definitely doesn't give young women an opportunity to like, understand themselves in different ways and to build confidence in different ways. It, it forced us, I think, to pick a lane a little bit. Right. And also just doesn't leave a lot of room for creativity or self-expression when it comes to like exploring clothes or fashion or makeup. Like I just, I didn't think that makeup was something for like normal people. Like I thought it was like, oh, okay, that's like a cool girl thing. Like I can't be seen as, you know, liking these things because that's, you know, I'm not of that like social strata. 
at school. It'll ruin my rep as a nice, smart girl. I mean, kind of. It was just, yeah. you, you sort of got the sense that like, oh, nice, smart girls who read all the time, like don't do this. Totally. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. I think that's a really great perspective. I'm glad that you read it that way because I skimmed over that. But I do think we have a little bit of Amber Brown, not like other girls here. For sure. And I think it also, obviously, this is, you know, far in the the future in terms of like age. But like, I think that kind of leads into really messed up ideas about relationships and sex, like later down the line. Yeah, I think that's, I think that there's probably such a huge conversation to be had about that. You're, you're making me want to read more about that. Yeah, well, I mean, it just with regard to like putting girls in boxes and like, you're like, okay, mm. like the pretty girls are the ones that are having relationships and like thinking about sex. And like, that's not something that the <laughs> the normal ones among us, like those of us who are wearing fleece sweatpants, like that's not something that we get to think about, I guess. Or like, that's not something that we should be thinking about. You're like, okay, you're like, you're in honors classes. So you shouldn't care about having a boyfriend. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the messaging that I got. And I think that is changing dramatically, but it was really just you know, these very separate boxes, I think. Yeah. And I want more than that for our girl, Amber. Yeah, for sure. She, she deserves more than that. So yeah, I hope that she and Hannah someday become friends and maybe reach an understanding and they both can learn from the other person. They, they each have a lot to learn from each other. Amber is going to have to befriend Hannah or befriend someone because Justin is leaving. Like we can't, we can't fight that anymore, but they, they fight. She's trying to help him pack, and and in his frustration with her, he he throws out this ball of chewing gum that they've put together together, and it it was a very like you killed our love fern kind of moment for me <laughs> of like this is so much more than you realize, and they're just really frustrated with each other. She finally breaks down to her mom, and her mom gives this advice that I think probably a lot of people's parents have given to them, which is basically like a lot of times when one person is getting ready to leave from somewhere like they naturally pull away because it will make it hurt a little bit less for them. I know my mom said that to me. And I think my dad said that to me when I was growing up. I don't know if it's true. I don't know what psychologists and like other mental health experts would say to that. But I think it works for Amber. And the good news is that they do eventually make up. Justin admits that he has sort of been putting on a brave face and that he's not as excited as he has let people believe about moving to Alabama. He's scared that he's not going to be able to join a little league team. He's scared that people are going to make fun of the way he talks. And Amber is able to express that she's really going to miss him. And it, it finishes on a pretty helpful note. The last couple paragraphs are... As we walk inside, I think about how it will be when Justin and I grow up and he doesn't have to move just because his parents move. Maybe someday we can open our own company. I'll be president one week and he'll be president the next. We'll sell jars of icing and boxes of cookies. Maybe someday we'll travel around the world trying out new flavors of chewing gum and the chewing gum ball will get so big that we'll build a house for it. Until then, maybe I can save some of my allowance each week and call Justin once in a while. He can do the same. I think I'm going to learn his new phone number by heart. That's such a throwback. Whenever I think about third grade, I'm going to think about Justin. And I bet he's always going to think about me. Yeah, it's such a sweet ending. I hope that that's how it actually plays out. I hope they open a cookies and icing company. And I hope that they that they have a giant chewing gum ball, even though that is so disgusting. It really is. But yeah, no, we need like an Amber Brown reboot like 30 years later. <laughs> HBO. Oh <my God. laughs> 
<laughs> HBO, are you listening? <laughs> if anybody can do it, it's them. Um, but on the whole, Rachel, what did you generally think about coming back to Amber Brown as an adult? Did it hold up for you? Did it match some of the memories that you had of it? Or was it surprising? Did it disappoint you? Yeah, it, it, it held up. Um, there were so many things that, like I was saying earlier, kind of sparked something in my memory, like the whole um, when they're ordering pizza and they yell and hold the anchovies. Yeah, <laughs> I had no idea what an anchovy was when I read this book, but it just for the longest time, I just associated like anchovies with something gross. And to this day, I have never tried them. And who knows if it was because of this book or not. <laughs> Maybe. Let's say it was. Yeah. Um, so that was one thing that, that, that really stood out to me. Definitely the chewing gum ball. I do remember that. But yeah, I mean, on the whole, a, a positive experience. And coming from reading like, you know, 400 page books, I was shocked that it was it was over so soon. I know. I know. Listeners, by the way, if you ever made a chewing gum ball, especially like in collaboration with someone else, I need to know about it because this is not something that I was familiar with. It's definitely not something that I did and I'm fascinated by it. So please DM me at SSRpod because I need I need to know the whole story. But anyway, other than Amber Brown is not a crayon, Rachel, what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners to check out? It's the beginning of August. We have another month or so of summer reading. What should people be picking up? Yes. So um, one of my favorite books that's come out lately is um, Made in Korea by Sarah Sook. And it is about two teens who run rival K-beauty businesses at their high school. Cool. And it is so much fun. It is just, you know, enemies to lovers, which is one of my favorite tropes. And uh, there are just so many. There's this one scene with lipstick that is just forever burned into my brain and you will know when you get to it. It's just so delicious. It's so good. So I would definitely recommend that. It's called Made in Korea. That sounds amazing. I'm definitely going to add it to my list. So this is, I've been playing it really cool, but I need to take a moment, Rachel, to tell you that I'm a huge fan of yours and (laughs) we can't keep meeting like this. It's quite literally like probably my favorite book that I've read so far this summer. And I'm not just saying that because I'm talking to you. It's documented. It's been in SSR newsletters and I'm obsessed with it. I love the X talk. I've heard such great things about today, tonight, tomorrow. If you don't mind me putting you on the spot, would you mind sharing a little bit with our listeners about We Can't Keep Meeting Like This? Because I know it came out pretty recently and I've been talking it up, but I would actually just like love to hear from you a little bit about it too, because I, I loved it so much. Oh, thank you so, so much for those kind words. It's it's really nice to hear that. Um, it's been a weird experience because, um, like I said, I left the U.S. a few months ago. So it's the first book that I have not gotten to like sign copies or see in a bookstore. So I'm really looking forward to doing that when I go home in December. Um, but We Can't Keep Meeting Like This. It is my fourth YA novel, my fifth book overall, which is also like so surreal to say, like, <laughs> feel like someone's going to tap my shoulder and be like, uh, no, actually, that that didn't happen. It's amazing. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it is about a teen harpist and a cater waiter who spend a summer working the same weddings. And um, the harpist, the main character, she is very jaded about love because her parents are wedding planners and they have this whole complicated history. And her love interest just adores 
grand gestures and romance. Another of my favorite tropes, um, grumpy sunshine. But um, the girl is the grumpy one, which I, I do enjoy quite a bit. Um, and it just has a lot of fun summer moments, wedding shenanigans, um, and, you know, hopefully just really escapist and, and swoony this time of year. Well, I really love it. I swooned over it. I want more people to read it. I'm going to include links to all of your books, including We Can't Keep Meeting Like This. In the show notes for this episode, I will also include links to the book you recommended to us and to Amber Brown is Not a Crayon. All of those links will take you to bookshop.org, which is, of course, my favorite little shop, big shop to support. And Rachel, I'm so glad that we had the chance to talk. I really appreciate your time, the time you took to read the book and to talk about it with me. Holly, this was so much fun. It was a great way to spend, well, evening for me, but but daytime for you. I'm so glad that we could do this. Yeah, we're just, we're keeping the time zones on their toes. It's been really nice to meet you. And um, thank you again for your work. I, I really do love your books and I can't wait to see what else you write. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>